Thank you, Michael. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving on Thursday and had plenty to eat. Uh, uh, hope that uh, you had some leftover pecan pie because that's always good on a Sunday afternoon. We are near the end of our study on the fruit of the Spirit that we've been calling Untwisted. The idea behind it is that human beings, and the evidence is everywhere, we see it on television. Unfortunately, many, many, well, in fact, all of us see it sort of close up on a daily basis. We see that human beings are, are bent and they're twisted and a lot of times distorted. And it's great, greatly uh, a sad thing to see and to experience. But the gospel is that God loves to untwist what is twisted. God loves to untwist what is twisted. And I want to begin this morning with a passage that a lot of us memorized as kiddos. It's from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and it goes like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is something to be proud of. The, the gospel is, is, is a treasure. The, the gospel is, is golden. I'm not ashamed of that gospel because it is, and the operative word here is the power. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is not just a decision in God's mind to forgive people of their sin in order for them to get to heaven or to get saved. Now believe me, that's a big part of it, and that's a big chunk of the blessing that comes in salvation. But what Paul is saying to the church in Rome is that the gospel is a power that comes into your life. It is the power of God the Spirit that God the Father puts into your life at salvation. Now, don't ask me about the nuts and the bolts of that. I don't understand how it works, but I believe it to be true. And I see the evidence of it in people's lives. And as disciples of Jesus walk with the Spirit, there is a power that comes into our lives that transforms our lives into something completely different. When you become a disciple of Jesus, your life will change. You will develop the character of God. By God's power, by God's Spirit in you, you will develop the, the character of God in your own life. You are still you, but there is a character of God that, being, that, is, that is blossoming in you. And that's why Paul calls it the walking by the, the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It is, it is a blossoming from the inside out. You are a person who has committed your life to becoming like God, and if you have, if you have committed your, your life to God, you are not going to stay the same. And so what Paul is doing to the church in Galatia and other churches is giving them an idea of what that looks like. There, there are words, there are virtues that everybody knows about, and those uh, virtues are not a complete list of what the character of God looks like, but it gives them an idea, something to get their mind around to help them to understand what it is that they're being developed into, what a disciple of Jesus will look like as he walks with the Spirit. The first one is love. And it's not that love that says, I love you for what I can get out of you. It's not a love that says, well, I love you to this place, but no further. It is a love to the very end. It is to will the good of others, regardless of the circumstances and how comfortable it might be. It's a love that brings the best out in others. When people come into a disciple of Jesus' presence, they encounter a love that is calling the best 
out of them. It's helping them to flourish and to thrive. And it does assume a degree of self-sacrifice. I mean, only one has, you, know, you only have to think about the cross of Jesus to see that to bring the good out of us, the best out of us, to change us, to connect us with God in eternal ways, it took the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And it was His love that kept Him on it. And from there, He goes from love to joy. That joy is a sign of this forever healing, that you know that something ultimate has been done to you. That death is not going to be your master or the, or the defining moment of your life. That even in the midst of suffering, joy, the biblical joy, is not, is not a substitute for grief or, or for sorrow. But the joy that the Bible talks about is those, those great truths, theological truths that come to us in God's kingdom, that there is a joy even in the worst moments in our life, in the darkness, in the crisis, in the middle of grief, there is a sense of joy. Many of you have, have felt it in your, in your deepest valley, in your darkest cave. When everything else seemed to be falling apart, you, there was a sense of joy. You couldn't explain it. It's inexpressible, Peter says. But there was a sense of joy that overlapped the suffering. You realize that everything ultimately important has been taken care of forever. And there's love, there's joy. The next thing he says is peace. Peace is the kingdom cure to anxiety. Uh, Peace is not the opposite of war. Peace is the opposite of anxiety, of, of everything falling apart. It is the idea, the Hebrew idea of shalom, that there is a completeness and a wholeness that comes to you because God is near you. And then there's the one that we all struggle with, patience. Patience is learning to live with someone else in control. It's not patient for patience' sake, but for the sake of others. It's being able to wait, trusting God and all of His promises, all of that to be true, to be good, to be right, and to be fulfilled, and not freaking out when things go a a little bit astray, at least in your vision, and you take things under control, uh, you take responsibility by taking... uh, putting your hand on it, and trying to control it. So there's love and there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, and there's kindness. Kindness is where love is put into action. Kindness is love that is practiced. Kindness is something that you can wrap your arms around and experience. It's love in action. And then last week we looked at goodness. Goodness, God is good. He is, there is goodness that just exudes from His presence. And when goodness comes into the life of a disciple of Jesus through God's power. That goodness is God-centeredness being made visible. Our goodness, God's goodness being evident in us, is evidence of becoming unruined as a human being. Now what we want to do this morning is consider the seventh virtue, which is, which is faithfulness. Now I don't know about you, I, I have learned in COVID-19 and this year 2020 that I am horrible at predicting the future. I mean, who could, did, did anybody here predict 2020? I mean, so much is uncertain in life as it goes. I mean, nobody can predict the future very well, and there's always an odd thing that happens. And then there's this year, 2020. Everything in our lives has been affected. There is nothing. Every nook and cranny, every niche in your soul, every nook and cranny in your body, your, your existence as a human being, all of that has been touched and changed somewhat this year. 
I mean, you think about COVID-19. I mean, there's so much contradictory information that you have to wade through. I mean, everything has just been changed because of this virus. I mean, I even have a new question I ask every day. You know what it is? Where's my mask? (laughs) 2020 has been the most unchill year in the 21st century. And then you had economic lockdown, you have social lockdowns, businesses shut down for a period of time, businesses disappeared, never to return. Socially, there was lockdown as we had to distance, people living more and more at home and not going out. There's social distancing, there's masks, there's all of this. I mean, the mental well-being of people was put to test this year. Economically, emotionally, our mental well-being was, was put to the test. We've just gone through a political election that was less than smooth or even nice. The unresolved issues of race and racism still loom in the background when they're not out at the forefront of our thinking. No one predicted this year. And for a lot of people, 2020 has felt like they were treading quicksand. The more you struggled, the deeper you sank. The more you sank, the more anxious you felt. The more anxious you felt, the more you struggled. The more you struggled, the more you sank. The more you sank, the more anxious you felt. The more anxious you get the idea. It's been like trading quicksand for a lot of people in our community. And then on top of that, we live in a culture that has for way too long, I mean, this is not a current problem, but, but the, the liabilities of this problem have become so manifest in this year that we live in a culture that for way too long has had no problem in canceling commitments, canceling handshakes, canceling promises, canceling contracts, canceling agreements. We live in a culture that will cancel people. If a a promise becomes inconvenient, then break it. If, If a person disagrees with you, then cancel them. Churches, businesses, families, marriages, relationships, they all pay a huge toll for the disposability of promises. And so we find ourselves in sinking times. We find ourselves in shaking times. And what do you need when you're sinking? What do you need when things are shaking? You need something solid to stand on. You need dependability. You need trustworthiness. What you need is faithfulness. One of the things the Bible says over and over about God is this. God is faithful. Let's say that together. But let's say it like we mean it. God is faithful. I mean, one of the things that gets you through moments like this are habits, right? Things that you can depend on. The routines of the day. Do you know what must be one of the greatest routines of your life as a disciple of Jesus? Dependability, the, 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 the ability to depend on the faithfulness of God each and every day. God is trustworthy. He keeps His promises. God never lies. You can rely on God to be true. You can depend on God to do the right thing, even when it contradicts or cuts across the grain of human will. I mean, think about David just for a second. I mean, has there anybody in the Bible been rocked around as much as David in the Old Testament? I mean, David is on the run. David is overlooked. David is, is they're trying to kill David. The most powerful man in the, in, the, in the country is trying to kill him. 
He's on the run. He commits so many awful sins. He loses his family to, to murder and to death. What is it that keeps David from sinking? What is it that keeps David on the path of being the man after God's own heart? It is God's faithfulness. And David celebrates it in Psalm 26. He says, I have been mindful of your chesed, your unfailing love. And I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. There were so many things that, that, that David, that, that fell apart for David, that proved false for David. But the one thing that he could rely on to keep him upright and to keep him going was the faithfulness of God. And the same is true when the people of Israel are getting ready to enter the promised land. Forty years they've been in the desert because they didn't believe that God was faithful even though he had shown it and shown it and shown it. And Moses in the book of Deuteronomy as they're getting ready to go into the into the promised land, gives them basically three sermons. And each of the sermons is reminding them, this is what God did. This is what God did. You wouldn't believe it, but this is what God did. God delivered you through these plagues from the most powerful superpower nation in the world. God made you rich as you left as slaves and formed a new nation at Mount Sinai. You were in the middle of the desert, and not once, not twice, but multiple times, God gave you water out of a rock. A rock that was able to quench the thirst of, of, of millions of people. He, he fed you. There were, there were no HEBs and no Circle Ks out in the middle of the desert. So how were they fed in the wilderness? God did it. And yet when they got to the gate of the promised land, they turned away and said, God's not going to do it. And that's why that present generation had to wander for 40 years. And as this new generation is getting ready to go in, Moses is begging and pleading with them to remember, to remember, to remember. That God, He is the rock. His works are perfect. All His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. He is upright and just is He. The big idea that Moses is trying to get to the people is that, you know, getting in the quicksand is inevitable. If you're a human being fallen and you're on planet Earth which is fallen... You're going to get into quicksand. It may be your own doing, it may be somebody else's doing, but you're going to get into the quicksand. But guess what? When you're, you're sinking in quicksand and what you need to stand on is a rock, guess what? God is the rock to stand on. So if I were to give you a definition of faithfulness, and again, you know, the, all, the, all of these words are bigger than just sort of these simple uh, uh, definitions. I mean, they mean so much more. They're so much rich but we try to get them into one line to, to, to kind of get the basics down. God does not put any little words inside of you. Love is big. Kindness is big. Faithfulness is big. But we're going to think about it this way. Faithfulness is trustworthiness. Faithfulness is trustworthiness. There are a lot of stories in the Bible that illustrate this. One of my favorite stories of faithfulness and trustworthiness is Abraham. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 do not believe that God is to be trusted. They do not believe that He has their best interest in His heart, and they act faithlessly toward Him. You know the story. Everything sort of comes undone. Corruption enters life, sin, death, all of that. Sin enters the world. It spreads not just 
you know, from, from Adam and, and to, to Eve and Eve to Adam but, and to the garden, but it spreads to their sons. And Cain kills Abel. He's banished as a wanderer. And after the death of Abel and Cain is sent off, there's a third son born to Adam and Eve. His name is Seth. And he is born, and at the end of Genesis chapter 4, there's this very important line, verse 26, that says, At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. There's, there's hope in that verse. There's hope in that verse. There is a line of people, beginning with Seth, that are going to look to God. And that line of people runs all the way to Noah, and from Noah to Abraham, but by the time we get to Abraham, at the end of Genesis 11, the beginning of chapter 12, this line of those who have called upon the name of the Lord has come to a dead end. It's come to a cul-de-sac. The line of those who call on the name of the Lord is now in a polytheistic culture. Abraham is married to a woman whose name reflects the, uh, the, the, the polytheistic sun god of, of that culture. If you read the end of the book of Joshua, and Joshua is relating how they all ended up in the promised land, how God has done it, reminds them that it all started when God called Abraham, and Abraham and his brother Nahor actually were in another land worshiping other gods. And so not only has the line that calls upon the name of God come to a dead end, it has come to a dead end theologically, but also to a dead end physically, as Abraham's wife is no longer, she's, she's not able to have children. The line of those who called upon the Lord is literally at a dead end and needs to do a U-turn. And this is when God calls Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, the beginning of Genesis 12. God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. All the people of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And Abraham decides it's time to get out of Ur of the Chaldees and to follow this God, especially because this God's going to make him a great nation, which means that he's going to have a son, which turns out that's his big concern. And it's here that there is a theme that runs through the story. What God promises, Abraham endangers. He lies and nearly loses his wife to another man, not once, but twice. He and, and Sarah take matters into their own hands. They've grown impatient. You know, we do this all the time. You know, God has made this promise, so I know that this is what the end result is, but I'm tired of waiting. Maybe God needs a hand. We'll help out here. And so they take matters into their own hands. They try to have a son through Sarah's maid, Hagar, which has created problems in the world even to this day. And it looks like a lost cause to Abraham, although God keeps saying to him, you're going to have a son, 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 and it's going to be through her, through Sarah. And then Genesis 15 rolls around. God appears to Abraham in a vision, and he says, you are going to have a son. And Abraham, in verse 6, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham thinks about all of his experiences with God. He thinks about all of his experiences with God, his encounters with God. And he comes to a decision to trust the faithfulness of God. That if God said this is going to happen, God has 
every intention and will fulfill his word. And God does come through, just as he said, with a son for Abraham. And many years later, as Paul is reflecting back on the importance of God's faithfulness and the need for us to be faithful to God, based and couched in the faithfulness of God, he, he, he thinks back, he looks back to Abraham's moment where he decides that, you know, if, it's, if I'm going to have a son, it can't be through me because I look at my body, I know my body, it's too old, it's not going to happen by me. And he looks over at his wife, Sarah, and sees her body and knows what's happening with her and knows that if it depends on her, it's not going to happen. If I'm going to have a son, it's going to be because God is faithful to what he promised, and it will come true. And so in Romans 4, verse 20, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he had promised. After all his, his God experiences, Abraham learned to trust God's faithfulness to his promises. God was the rock under Abraham's feet when he felt like he was in quicksand and about to go under. And God's faithfulness engenders faithfulness in our own hearts towards him god over and over shows himself to be faithful to his word and to be trustworthy he calls us to be faithful to him and to trust him even when there's every reason not to by the things that we see to trust his faithfulness to his word and so two really practical ways that that faithfulness begins to be seen in us is that we make and keep promises the way that God does, and we tell the truth, just like God. And this is the starting place to share the gospel in a I'll believe it when I see it culture. It's called living on the rock. People whose faithfulness to God is seen in the way that they love and, and their joy, their patience, their peace, their kindness and goodness. It's seen in lives that cut, cut across the grain where canceling is so easy. A people who don't give up because God himself does not give up even though we give him every excuse to do so. It is a people forged in faithfulness to say even in the valley, to say in the dark that the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. I will not fear because He is with me. His rod and His staff, they comfort me. To say in those moments, regardless of what is happening around us, that His, 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 His love and His mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And because of His faithfulness, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Let's stand and sing.